This episode of Sleepy is proudly sponsored by ButcherBox. If you've listened to Sleepy for a while, you know that I love good food, eating well and treating my body right so that I can take on my days. Well, ButcherBox helps you do exactly that. They deliver super high quality, 100% grass-fed beef, free-range organic chicken, crate-free pork, and wild-caught seafood right to your door. It's humanely raised, no antibiotics or added hormones. They have a huge variety to choose from. They are excellent deals. They've got recipes and guides and tips included, and there's free shipping, always. Eating well is a huge factor in getting a good night's sleep, as is sometimes saving the trip to the grocery store and taking some stress out of your daily schedule. I have been loving these deliveries for those reasons. Been cooking up their uh, steak tips with eggs in the morning with butter and scallions and soy sauce. And I also made a delicious brine chicken roast with lemon parsley gravy. So good. The prices for this kind of quality and convenience is really impressive. Uh, yeah, ButcherBox has made me very happy. So sign up at butcherbox.com sleepy and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free for a year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free in every order for a year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com sleepy and use code sleepy to choose your free for a year offer. Plus get $20 off your first order. Butcherbox.com sleepy. Eat well, sleep well. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the I Can't Sleep Podcast with Benjamin Boster. If you're tired of sleepless nights, you'll love the I Can't Sleep Podcast. I help quiet your mind by reading random articles from across the web to bore you to sleep with my soothing voice. Each episode provides enough interesting content to hold your attention and then your mind lets you drift off. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. That's I Can't Sleep with Benjamin Boster. Hey, my name's Otis Gray, and you're listening to Sleepy. podcast where I read old books to help you get to sleep, and a proud member of the Airwave Podcast Network. I have got a wonderful, snoozy bedtime story for you tonight, but before we get to tonight's reading, I just want to thank all of our patrons on Patreon.com. Trisha Cruz, Shay Long, Amy Robin and Jim McDermott. Thank you all 
so, so much for donating and being a part of making this show. And for anyone who doesn't know, uh, these brand new names that I just read are patrons now on patreon.com, which is a website where you can go and support creators of the work that you like. So, if you love the Sleepy Podcast, if it's helped you get a better night's rest and wake up more refreshed the next day, then consider going to patreon.com and donating even a dollar a month. At $5 a month, you get access to a whole nother set of poetry readings that are not on the regular podcast feed. Um, that's for $5 a month, but no matter how much you donate, I will read your name in the opening credits of the next show after you do. So again, if you would like to be a part of making this show, then go to patreon.com slash sleepy radio. Thank you. And as always, the music you're hearing is by my good friend James Lebkowski, and the cover-up for Sleepy is by Gracie Kanan. Got a really, really sleepy little tale for you tonight. It is by the famous American author F. Scott Fitzgerald of Great Gatsby fame and is called The Beautiful and Damned. Uh, Fitzgerald's writing is, is pretty incredible, but a lot of run-on sentences, very descriptive, very good to go to sleep to. So, I hope you enjoy this bedtime reading as spring starts to roll around and we get towards our 200th episode. Crazy. Okay, that's enough of me yapping. Tonight, The Beautiful and Damned by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And now is the time for you to fluff up your pillow just how you like it. Feel yourself melt into your bed. Get real comfortable. Close your eyes. And let me read to you. Chapter 1 Anthony Patch In 1913, when Anthony Patch was 25, two years were already gone since Irony, the Holy Ghost of this later day, had theoretically at least descended upon him. Irony was the final polish of the shoe, the ultimate dab of the clothes brush, a sort of intellectual, there. Yet at the brink of this story, he has as yet gone no further than the conscious stage. As you first see him, he wonders frequently whether he is not without honor and slightly mad, a shameful and obscene thinness glistening on the surface of the world like oil on a clean pond. These occasions being varied, of course, 
with those in which he thinks himself rather an exceptional young man, thoroughly sophisticated, well-adjusted to his environment, and somewhat more significant than anyone else he knows. This was his healthy state, and it made him cheerful, pleasant, and very attractive to intelligent men and to all women. In this state, he considered that he would one day accomplish some quiet, subtle thing that the elect would deem worthy, and passing on would join the dimmer stars in a nebulous, interdeterminate heaven, halfway between death and immortality. Until the time came for this effort, he would be Anthony Patch, not a portrait of a man, but a distinct and dynamic personality, opinionated, contemptuous, functioning from within, outward, a man who was aware that there could be no honor, and yet had honor, who knew the sophistry of courage, and yet was brave. A worthy man and his gifted son. Anthony drew as much consciousness of social security from being the grandson of Adam J. Patch as he would have had from tracing his line over the sea to the Crusaders. This is inevitable. Virginians and Bostonians, to the contrary notwithstanding, an aristocracy founded sheerly on money postulates wealth in the particular. Now, Adam J. Patch, more familiarly known as Cross Patch, left his father's farm in Terrytown early in 61 to join a New York cavalry regiment. He came home from the war major, charged into Wall Street, and amid much fuss, fume, applause, and ill will, he gathered to himself some $75 million. This occupied his energies until he was 57 years old. It was then that he determined, after a severe attack of sclerosis, to concentrate the remainder of his life to the moral regeneration of the world. He became a reformer among reformers. Emulating the magnificent efforts of Anthony Comstock, after whom his grandson was named, he leveled a varied assortment of uppercuts and body blows at liquor, literature, vice, art, patent medicines, and Sunday theaters. His mind, under the influence of that insidious mildew which eventually forms on all but the few, gave itself up furiously to every indignation of the age. From an armchair in the office of his Tarrytown estate, he directed against the enormous hypothetical enemy, unrighteousness, a campaign which went on through fifteen years, during which he displayed himself a rabid monomaniac, an unqualified nuisance and an intolerable bore. The year in which this story opens found him wearying. His campaign had grown desultory. 1861 was creeping up slowly on 1895, 
His thoughts ran a great deal in the Civil War, somewhat on his dead wife and son, almost infinitesimally on his grandson Anthony. Early in his career, Adam Patch had married an anemic lady of 30, Alice Withers, who brought him $100,000 and an impeccable entree into the banking circles of New York. Immediately, and rather spunkily, she had borne him a son, and, as if completely devitalized by the magnificence of this performance, she had thenceforth effaced herself within the shadowy dimensions of the nursery. The boy, Adam Ulysses Patch, became an inveterate joiner of clubs, connoisseur of good form, and driver of tandems. At the astonishing age of 26, he began his memoirs under the title New York Society as I Have Seen It. On the rumor of its conception, this work was eagerly bid for among publishers, but as it proved after his death to be a moderately verbose and overpoweringly dull, it never obtained even a private printing. This Fifth Avenue Chesterfield married at 22. His wife was Henrietta Lebrun, the Boston Society Contralto, and the single child of the Union was, at the request of his grandfather, christened Anthony Comstock Patch. When he went to Harvard, the Comstock dropped out of his name to another hell of oblivion and was never heard of thereafter. Young Anthony had one picture of his father and mother together. So often had it faced his eyes in childhood that it had acquired the impersonality of furniture. But everyone who came into his bedroom regarded it with interest. It showed a dandy of the 90s, spare and handsome, standing beside a tall, dark lady with a muff and the suggestion of a bustle. Between them was a little boy with long brown curls, dressed in a velvet Lord Fauntleroy suit. This was Anthony at five, the year of his mother's death. His memories of the Boston Society Contralto were nebulous and musical. She was a lady who sang, sang, sang in the music room of their house on Washington Square. Sometimes with guests scattered all about her, the men with their arms folded, balanced breathlessly on the edges of sofas, the women with their hands in their laps, occasionally making little whispers to the men and always clapping very briskly and uttering cooing cries after each song. And often, she sang to Anthony alone, in Italian or French. His recollections of the gallant Ulysses, the first man in America to roll the lapels of his coat, were much more vivid. After Henrietta Lebrun Patch had joined another choir, 
as her widower huskily remarked from time to time. Father and son lived up at Grandpa's house in Terrytown. Then Ulysses came daily to Anthony's nursery and expelled pleasant, thick-smelling words for sometimes as much as an hour. He was continually promising Anthony hunting trips and fishing trips and excursions to Atlantic City. Oh, sometime soon now. But none of them ever materialized. One trip they did take. When Anthony was 11, they went abroad to England and Switzerland. And there in the best hotel in Lucerne, his father died with much sweating and grunting and crying aloud for air. In a panic of despair and terror, Anthony was brought back to America, wedded to a vague melancholy that was to stay beside him through the rest of his life. Past and person of the hero. At eleven, he had a horror of death. Within six impressionable years, his parents had died and his grandmother had faded off almost imperceptibly until for the first time since her marriage, her person held for one day an unquestioned supremacy over her own drawing room. So to Anthony, life was a struggle against death that waited at every corner. It was as a concession to his hypochondriacal imagination that he formed the habit of reading in bed. It soothed them. He read until he was tired and often fell asleep with the lights still on. His favorite diversion until he was 14 was his stamp collection. Enormous, as nearly exhaustive as a boy's could be. His grandfather considered fatuously that it was teaching him geography. So Anthony kept up a correspondence with a half dozen stamp and coin companies, and it was rare that the mail failed to bring him new stamp books or packages of glittering approval sheets. There was a mysterious fascination in transferring his acquisitions intermittently from one book to another. His stamps were his greatest happiness, and he bestowed impatient frowns on anyone who interrupted him that play with them. They devoured his allowance every month, and he lay awake at night, musing untiringly on their variety and many-color splendor. At sixteen, he had lived almost entirely within himself, an inarticulate boy, thoroughly un-American, and politely bewildered by his contemporaries. The two preceding years had been spent in Europe with a private tutor who persuaded him that Harvard was the thing. It would open doors. It would be a tremendous tonic. It would give him innumerable self-sacrificing and devoted friends. So, he went to Harvard. 
there was no other logical thing to be done with them. Oblivious to the social system, he lived for a while alone and unsought in a high room in Beck Hall, a slim dark boy of medium height with a shy, sensitive mouth. His allowance was more than liberal. He laid the foundations for a library by purchasing from a wandering bibliophile first editions of Swinburne, Meredith, and Hardy and a yellowed, illegible autograph letter of Keats's, finding later that he had been amazingly overcharged. He became an exquisite dandy, amassed a rather pathetic collection of silk pajamas, brocaded dressing gowns, and neckties too flamboyant to wear. In this secret finery, he would parade before a mirror in his room, or lie stretched in satin along his window seat, looking down in the yard and realizing dimly this clamor, breathless and immediate, in which it seemed he was never to have a part. Curiously enough, he found in senior year that he had acquired a position in his class. He learned that he was looked upon as a rather romantic figure, a scholar, a recluse, a tower of erudition. This amused him, but secretly pleased him. He began going out, at first a little, and then a great deal. He made the pudding. He drank, quietly and in proper tradition. It was said of him that had he not come to college so young, he might have done extremely well. In 1909, when he graduated, he was only 20 years old. Then abroad again, to Rome this time, where he dallied with architecture and painting in turn, took up the violin, and wrote some ghastly Italian sonnets, supposedly the ruminations of a 13th century monk on the joys of the contemplative life. It became established among his Harvard intimates that he was in Rome, and those of them who were abroad that year looked him up and discovered with him on many moonlight excursions, much in the city that was older than the Renaissance, or indeed than the Republic. Maury Noble, from Philadelphia, for instance, remained two months, and together they realized the peculiar charm of Latin women, and had a delightful sense of being very young, and free in a civilization that was very old and free. Not a few acquaintances of his grandfather's called on him, and had he so desired, he might have been persona grata with the diplomatic set. Indeed, he found that his inclinations tended more and more toward conviviality, but that long, adolescent aloofness and consequent shyness still dictated to his conduct. He returned to America in 1912 because of one of his grandfather's sudden illnesses. Then after an excessively tiresome talk 
with a perpetually convalescent old man. He decided to put off until his grandfather's death the idea of living permanently abroad. After a prolonged search, he took an apartment on 52nd Street and all appearances settled down. In 1913, Anthony Patch's adjustment of himself to the universe was in process of consummation. Physically, he had improved since his undergraduate days. He was still too thin, but his shoulders had widened and his brunette face had lost the frightened look of his freshman year. He was secretly orderly and in person spick and span. His friends declared that they had never seen his hair rumpled. His nose was too sharp. His mouth was one of those unfortunate mirrors of mood inclined to droop perceptibly in moments of happiness. But his blue eyes were charming, whether alert with intelligence or half-closed in an expression of melancholy humor. One of those men devoid of the symmetry of feature essential to the Aryan ideal. He was yet, here and there, considered handsome. Moreover, he was very clean, in appearance and in reality, with that especial cleanness borrowed from beauty. The Reproachless Apartment Fifth and Sixth Avenues, it seemed to Anthony, were the uprights of a gigantic ladder stretching from Washington Square to Central Park. Coming down on top of a bus toward 52nd Street invariably gave him the sensation of hoisting himself hand by hand on a series of treacherous rungs, and when the bus jolted to a stop at his own rung, he found something akin to relief as he descended the reckless metal steps to the sidewalk. After that, he had but to walk down 52nd Street half a block, past a stodgy family of brownstone houses, and then in a jiffy, he was under the high ceilings of his great front room. This was entirely satisfactory. Here, after all, Life began. Here he slept, breakfasted, read, and entertained. The house itself was of murky material, built in the late 90s. In response to the steadily growing need of small apartments, each floor had been thoroughly remodeled and rented individually. Of the four apartments, Anthony's on the second floor was the most desirable. The front room had fine high ceilings and three large windows that loomed down pleasantly upon 52nd Street. In its appointments, it escaped by a safe margin, being of any particular period. It escaped stiffness, stuffiness, bareness, and decadence. It smelled neither of smoke nor of incense. It was tall and faintly blue. 
there was a deep lounge of the softest brown leather with somnolence drifting about it like a haze. There was a high screen of Chinese lacquer chiefly concerned with geometrical fishermen and huntsmen in black and gold. This made a corner alcove for a voluminous chair guarded by an orange-colored standing lamp. Deep in the fireplace, a quartered shield was burned to a murky black. Passing through the dining room, which, as Anthony took only breakfast at home, was merely a magnificent potentiality, and down a comparatively long hall, one came to the heart and core of the apartment, Anthony's bedroom and bath. Both of them were immense. Under the ceilings of the former, even the great canopied bed seemed of only average size. On the floor, an exotic rug of crimson velvet was soft as fleece on his bare feet. His bathroom, in contrast to the rather portentous character of his bedroom, was gay, bright, extremely habitable, and even faintly facetious. Framed around the walls were photographs of four celebrated thespian beauties of the day, Julia Sanderson as the Sunshine Girl, Ina Clare as the Quaker Girl, Billy Burke as the Mind the Paint Girl, and Hazel Dawn as the Pink Lady. Between Billy Burke and Hazel Dawn hung a print representing a great stretch of snow presided over by a cold and formidable sun. This, claimed Anthony, symbolized the cold shower. The bathtub, equipped with an ingenious book holder, was low and large. Beside it, a wall wardrobe bulged with sufficient linen for three men for the generation of neckties. There was no skimpy, glorified towel of a carpet. Instead, a rich rug, like the one in his bedroom, a miracle of softness that seemed to almost massage the wet foot emerging from the tub. All in all, a room to conjure with. It was easy to see that Anthony dressed there, arranged his immaculate hair there, in fact did everything but sleep and eat there. It was his pride, this bathroom. He felt that if he had had a love, he would have hung her picture just facing the tub, so that, lost in the soothing steamings of hot water, he might lie and look up at her and muse warmly and sensuously on her beauty. Nor does he spin. The apartment was kept clean by an English servant with the singularly, almost theatrically appropriate name of Bounds, whose technic was marred only by the fact that he wore a soft collar. 
had he been entirely Anthony's bounds, this defect would have been summarily remedied. But he was also the bounds of two other gentlemen in the neighborhood. From eight until eleven in the morning, he was entirely Anthony's. He arrived with the mail and cooked breakfast. At 9.30 he pulled the edge of Anthony's blanket and spoke a few terse words. Anthony never remembered clearly what they were and rather suspected they were deprecative. Then he served breakfast on a card table in the front room, made the bed, and, after asking with some hostility if there was anything else, withdrew. In the mornings, at least once a week, Anthony went to see his broker. His income was slightly under 7000 a year, the interest on money inherited from his mother. His grandfather, who had never allowed his own son to graduate from a very liberal allowance, judged that his sum was sufficient for young Anthony's needs. Every Christmas, he sent him a $500 bond, which Anthony sold, if possible, as he was always a little, not very, hard up. The visits to his broker varied from semi-social chats to discussions of the safety of 8% investments, and Anthony always enjoyed them. The big trust company building seemed to link him definitely to the great fortunes whose solidarity he respected and to assure him that he was adequately chaperoned by the hierarchy of finance. From these hurried men, he derived the same sense of safety that he had in contemplating his grandfather's money. Even more, for the latter appeared, vaguely, a demand loan made by the world to Adam Patch's own moral righteousness, while this money downtown seemed rather to have been grasped and held by sheer indomitable strength and tremendous feats of will. In addition, it seemed more definitely and explicitly money. Closely as Anthony trod on the heels of his income, he considered it to be enough. Some golden day, of course, he would have many millions. Meanwhile, he possessed a raison d'etre in the theatrical creation of essays on the popes of the Renaissance. This flashes back to the conversation with his grandfather immediately upon his return from Rome. He had hoped to find his grandfather dead, but had learned by telephoning from the pier that Adam Patch was comparatively well again. The next day, he had concealed his disappointment and gone out to Terrytown. Five miles from the station, his taxicab entered an elaborately groomed drive that threaded a veritable maze of walls and wire fences guarding the estate. This, said the public, was because it was definitely known 
that if the socialists had their way, one of the first men they'd assassinate would be old Crosspatch. Anthony was late, and the venerable philanthropist was awaiting him in a glass-walled sun parlor, where he was glancing through the morning papers for a second time. His secretary, Edward Shuttleworth, who before his regeneration had been a gambler, saloon keeper, and general reprobate, ushered Anthony into the room, exhibiting his redeemer and benefactor as though he were displaying a treasure of immense value. They shook hands gravely. I'm awfully glad to hear you're better, Anthony said. The senior patch, with an air of having seen his grandson only last week, pulled out his watch. Train late, he asked mildly. It had irritated him to wait for Anthony. He was under the delusion not only that in his youth he had handled his practical affairs with the utmost scrupulousness, even to keeping every engagement on the dock, but also that this was the direct and primary cause of his success. It's been late a good deal this month, he remarked with a shade of meek accusation in his voice. And then after a long sigh, sit down. Anthony surveyed his grandfather with that tacit amazement which always attended the sight. That this feeble, unintelligent old man was possessed of such power that, yellow journals to the contrary, the men in the Republic, whose souls he could not have brought directly or indirectly, would scarcely have populated White Plains, seemed as impossible to believe as that he had once been a pink and white baby. The span of his 75 years had acted as a magic bellows. The first quarter century had blown him full with life, and the last had sucked it all back. It had sucked in the cheeks and the chest and the girth of arm and leg. It had tyranniously demanded his teeth, one by one, suspended his small eyes and dark bluish sacks, tweaked out his hairs, changed him from gray to white in some places, from pink to yellow in others, callously transposing his colors like a child trying over a paint box. Then through his body and his soul, it had attacked his brain. It had sent him night sweats and tears and unfounded dreads. It had split his intense normality into credulity and suspicion. Out of the coarse material of his enthusiasm, it had cut dozens of meek but petulant obsessions. His energy was shrunk to the bad temper of a spoiled child, and for his will to power was substituted a fatuous, puerile desire for a land of harps and canticles on earth. The amenities having been gingerly touched upon, 
Anthony felt that he was expected to outline his intentions. And simultaneously, a glimmer in the old man's eye warned him against broaching, for the present, his desire to live abroad. He wished that Shuttleworth would have tact enough to leave the room. He detested Shuttleworth, but the secretary had settled blandly in a rocker and was dividing between the two patches the glances of his faded eyes. Now that you're here, you ought to do something, said his grandfather softly. Accomplish something. Anthony waited for him to speak of leaving something done when you pass on. Then he made a suggestion. I thought it seemed to me that I'm perhaps best qualified to write. Adam Patch winced, visualizing a family poet with long hair and three mistresses. History finished Anthony. History. History of what? The Civil War? The Revolution? Why, no, sir. A history of the Middle Ages. Simultaneously, an idea was born for a history of the Renaissance popes, written from some novel angle. Still, he was glad he said Middle Ages. Middle Ages? Why not your own country, something you know about? Well, you see, I've lived so much abroad. Why you should write about the Middle Ages, I don't know. Dark Ages, we used to call them. Nobody knows what happened, and nobody cares, except that they're over now. He continued for some ten minutes on the uselessness of such information, touching naturally on the Spanish Inquisition and the corruption of the monasteries. Then, do you think you'll be able to do any work in New York, or do you really intend to work at all? This last, with soft, almost imperceptible cynicism. Why, yes, I do, sir. When will you be done? Well, there'll be an outline, you see, and a lot of preliminary reading. I should think you've done enough of that already. The conversation worked itself jerkily toward a rather abrupt conclusion. When Anthony rose, looked at his watch, and remarked that he had an engagement with his broker that afternoon. He'd intended to stay a few days with his grandfather, but he was tired and irritated from a rough crossing and quite unwilling to stand a subtle and sanctimonious browbeating. He would come out again in a few days, he said. Nevertheless, it was due to this encounter that work had come into his life as a permanent idea. During the year that had passed since then, he had made several lists of authorities. He had even experimented with chapter titles and the division of his work into periods, 
but not one line of actual writing existed at present or seemed likely ever to exist. He did nothing, and contrary to the most accredited copybook logic, he managed to divert himself with more than average content. Thank you for listening to Sleepy. Good night.